Howdy, folks. Alan Alford here, CISO and CTO at TrustMap and uh, former CISO at many, many places. Uh, with me today is Martin Peterson. Martin, why don't you tell folks a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I'm Martin Peterson. I'm the uh, global CISO here at ISS. Uh, ISS is a company that specializes in facility management. So everything you can think of uh, concerning buildings and everything relevant to buildings, but also power plants and whatnot. We uh, do the service uh, around that. So it's cleaning, catering, whatnot. Um, obviously, my job here is at ISS is to ensure that whatever services we offer are, are safe and sound to protect our customers, but obviously also protecting our internal uh, security estate. That's fantastic. Now, you're here to talk with me today about measuring cybersecurity return on investment. And, and I thought before we dive into the details there, we should probably just tackle the elephant in the room which is how much should we be reporting spend, investment, return, justification in terms of all these measured numbers? How does this model conflict with sort of the storytelling model? Uh, and what are the hazards of leading a board level conversation with spend justification? That's a very, very good question, Alan. I think what is an observation that I have made throughout the last couple of years is that you often uh, tend to confuse people with bringing in too many numbers on investments and trying to calculate a return on investment. Uh, and that takes away from the story you actually want to tell. Because what's more fundamentally important is that you highlight the risk that you see in your environment and why it is important to have a spend in that area to mitigate a certain risk. But if you do end-to-end uh, -end, uh, calculation of all the numbers, uh, be that the likelihood uh, numbers on loss event frequencies and whatnot, that can quickly uh, lead the conversation to a place where you don't want it to be. Because then the mm -hmm. conversation gets to a state where you discuss the numbers and whether or not you can trust those numbers rather than focusing on the actual issue at hand that you want to address. Right. So, so in your, in your mind, we're measuring those numbers. We're keeping those numbers in our back pocket. We're not necessarily taking those numbers to the board. Is that sort of the, the gist of it? Yeah, that would be, be my message and, and my advice to colleagues really focus on the storytelling. Uh, in my experience, that's much more valuable uh, to do so, um, so that you can address the problem you try to solve. I got it. So we're measuring these things for ourselves now. So if we're going to start measuring the success of an investment, um, we have to contrast that with some form of measurement uh, about what we're protecting, right? In other words, we spend $10 to protect 100 That's a good good deal. We spend $100 to protect $10. That's not so good a deal. Um, what are those first steps in measuring the benefits of a given effort of protection? Um, you know, my my simplified model is we do asset valuation of some kind, right? And that could include data, right? The value of the data itself. Then we do risk quantification of some kind. It could be something as simple as likelihood and impact, or it could be something as complex as FAIR or one of these kinds of models. And then we ultimately have to quantify the remediation as well. And if we do those three things, we should know what we're protecting, how big a serious deal it is to protect it, and what it's going to cost to protect it. And now we can play with all those numbers. Um, but I think you've got a different take on that one, and I'd love to hear your take on that one. Yeah, sure. Um so what, what we tend to do in this aspect is to have a combination of, of different measurements. So for one, 
what we do uh, deploy also for the storytelling that I mentioned earlier is, uh, is a maturity assessment uh, of our security organization to be able to compare how are we performing against standards such as NIST, for example, to see is our average uh, benchmark and security actually at a, at a point where you want it to be and what would it require to get from, say, zero or three to three and a half. And then you can work on in the background, as you say, look a little bit clo more closely at uh, where do we get most bang for the buck and which, in which area, which solution or technology piece could get us to, to the desired state. Um, so for the return of investment, uh, we do a bit of calculation in the background. And as you mentioned, the risk, risk likelihood impact, we do that uh, standardly. And for project spends, when we need to pitch a project to the board, to the IT committee, what we do is we actually try to do a fair approach in the background so that I have the numbers in the back of my head because I need to know uh, and and weight different products. For example, a product could cost me $200,000 a year in licenses. Another one could cost me 500000 or a million. Uh, but if that extra spend only gives me a tiny amount of extra maturity, well, then it might be a better, um, from, from a costing perspective, better to take uh, the $200,000 deal uh, because the other ones only add very, very marginally to the maturity where we want to be. I, I love that you're leading with maturity. I do I do the same thing. Um, I'm a big believer in maturity as an index. And and just as a as a brief aside, I know some shops, and it totally depends on on the board. I've been able to generate my own maturity scores, and I've also seen the board insist that it be one of the big four come in. Some outside entity come in and put their stamp on what my maturity is, and and, and my own scores are irrelevant to the board. I've I found that conundrum there. Um, but beyond that, you know, we've got essentially in my mind, three things that we're reporting, you know, maturity being probably the most important, but also um, risk management and reduction. Like I, I will bubble up what the highest risks are to the board, you know, in terms of here's my top five risks, here's my maturity, here's my top five risks that I'm managing or reducing, whatever it might be. And then there's also to me um, a third one of business objective alignment that that you have to be able to say all three of these things when you're having a board level conversation. So do you agree with those other two? I know you agree with maturity. I think we've covered that one really well. Do you agree with those other two? And if not, what kind of alternatives do you have there? No, I mean, I do agree to the largest extent. Um, one thing I would add to that uh, is actually that I try to pull in examples into the uh, into the board presentation, right? So it start mm -hmm. off with the maturity assessment. Then uh, at discussion around where are we scoring lower, low, why are we scoring low on those points? Um, and then I would uh, pivot off to the highest risk that we have in the environment and link that to the maturity assessment to say, so for example, let's just take an example and resilience might be an area where we're not scoring high. And then I can tell the story on why it might be a good idea to invest in that space because that usually also links to the highest risk you have that you have not mitigated yet in that perspective. So I'm trying to use that combined with another flavor on, uh, we carry out um, breach and tax simulations, but also proper red teaming exercises. And if I can find linkages to real examples or incidents that we have in the environment that had an impact on where we score lower, low and where we have high risk, and that's really, really good for the storytelling because you can link it directly to real life examples. 
and that usually gets gets the attention because in some cases the C level of the board might even recall those incidents because they had an impact on the business. So that's just a, another angle that I'd like to include. I love that. And active breach and attack simulation, red teaming, these sorts of things to, to really hammer home those categories. I'm curious, though, where you get your list of categories from. Like you mentioned resilience. I'm sitting here thinking of historically I've used identify, detect, protect, respond, recover, right? Um, you've got resilience as one of your categories. Are you gathering the categories based on the activities, the the red teaming, the, the breach and attack simulation? Are you pre-declaring those? I'm just kind of curious where those categories come from. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So Without venturing too far away from, from the actual topic, of course, I mean, we do use NIST for the actual maturity assessment, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the recover section in there, I would pivot off to resilience because the resilience links very well to, to the risk and the business continuity planning that you need to do. Generally, yes. that's not as well covered in the NIST as such. Um, to the extent uh, that that resilient is resilience is perceived uh, these days, so there I need to venture off a little bit and get inspiration, yeah, from uh, from the tests that we conduct and so forth. But also draw in examples from when we do restore testing, other things, or if we have uh, uh, you know high level incidents ongoing, such as the the war in the Ukraine. For example, when you need to really ensure that your business continuity plans are up to speed, that your resilience is up to speed, then I can draw in those examples uh, to, to make the business aware of this is actually where, where, the, where the IT security and the protection mechanisms and so forth stop. Because once we venture off into that realm, it's really a, a much more collaboration between the business and the information security functions that, that needs to happen. And uh, so in that, that way, I can get the attention from, from the board and the C-level to tell that story as well. And because then you also venture into what's important to them uh, much more. I, I, I love that. That's fantastic. So, so you talked, I'm going to return to something you said a little bit earlier. Um, you mentioned that you do, in fact, use FAIR sort of in the back room, if you will. Uh, and you've got those numbers ready to defend if necessary. Um, FAIR versus the traditional 5x5 five five likelihood and impact grid. Um, tell me a little bit more about your take on that and why you chose FAIR as part of your whole uh, ROI calculation process here. Yeah, of course. So the reason why you want to choose that is so we, if we all think a little bit about um, the maturity assessment, right? Going from a 0 to a 1, uh, going from a 1 to a 2, 2 to a 3, uh, there the investment is relatively proportionate to the maturity gain you get. But going from the zero mark to the four, from a three to a three and a half, that where, that's where the devil is in the details. And you will have a much slower progression going forward to reach these maturity levels. Meaning what I want to say is that you have a security budget which might be high but to reach a three. But to go from the three to three and a half, you need to use exponentially more money uh, to get there. And in order to justify that extra spend, because you want to be at that maturity level, it's helpful to do the calculations on specific projects that you want to have and use the FAIR methodology to actually see, okay, this reduces the loss of infrequency by X, which saves us so much money uh, for this critical service when you think the end-to-end -end value chain. So this is really where you then need to have those details and have done the analysis so you can pitch it. It's not necessarily that you need to show that, 
level of detail, but you need to have it in the back of your mind to be able to tell that story and also justify that. Be patient with us. Uh, the last few years, we could really increase our maturity by a lot, but now it's 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 really a marathon to get to that final stage where you want to be. Yeah. I- I like that, and I'm a firm believer in that as well. It's it's amazing how quickly it is to shoot up to three versus getting three to a three and a half. You know that that sort of that sort of paradigm. I love using fair as part of that calculation. You know method there. So you sort of you're you're intersecting you know risk with with maturity when you when you take that level of calculation with fair. I think that's a fantastic model. Uh, you mentioned storytelling at the beginning of this though that you're definitely one of the storytellers versus presenting that fair math. And so I guess I have one final question on that piece before I pivot to something else you just said. But I want to ask you just the good old-fashioned red, yellow, green. Um, do you use that in your board reports? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Um, yes, we, we use that, right? Uh, so when I look at the general pool of information security risk we have, we do categorize them in their risk likelihood score with a, with a red, yellow, green Um for the, for the majority of them to be able to say, this is the high risking items we have and we have so and so many of these. Uh, this is the intention intended mitigation strategies for these. And in some cases you cannot mitigate, so you seek for a risk acceptance, right? And that is tricky to do with a fair methodology because they, you would quickly lose the focus from, from what you actually want to achieve in that space. FAIR is good for, for project pivoting when you get into the financials on why is it good to, or how can this specific tool or hiring more people address this problem, where the other one is more of the awareness of the general pool of problems you have. Um, so that's mm-hmm. how I differentiate the two. I, I like that. I like having that, that sort of that layered approach. Um, so, so you mentioned the, you know, the growth from, from zero to three, zero to four, three to three and a half, and all these variations. There's a there's a phenomenon there that I call the it's not one and done, right? In other words, um, I'm at a zero. Uh, I don't know. For some reason, I'm starting at a zero, and I'm trying to get to a three. And I go through and look at the risks, and I, and I run the fair in the back room, and I look at maturity and everything else. I look at resilience, and what I conclude is, I don't know, I need uh, an EDR solution, let's say. So I buy that EDR solution. It's a subscription. It's a, you know, it's a SaaS model. And I spend my whatever, million dollars, and now I have EDR. Well, that's this year. Next year, just to maintain that three, I have to still spend that same million dollars on that same subscription. But now I also need money to go above and beyond because that only maintains my three status and I'm trying to get to three and a half on my maturity. So you're piling new costs on every year. And obviously, in, in a lot of the business, they're not used to that model of, you know, last year is, is you know, this year is going to be more expensive than last year, period, because we're, we're still trying to achieve these higher level goals. How do you manage that aspect of it? How do you work with the board on, you know, and, and work with leadership? I keep saying the board. Obviously, this is not necessarily a board level conversation, but how do you work with your leadership on that phenomenon? And then how do you end up uh, reporting any of that to the board, if at all? Mm, that's a really good question. And I'll throw another one in there. I mean, the, the threat landscape isn't static, right? Um, mm. And the regulatory environment isn't either. So while you have want to maintain a three, uh, and the 2022 budget you had might not suffice in 2023 to even hold the right. maturity of three because the landscape is just changing so quickly. So no matter what you do, even if you want to stay where you are, you need to invest more uh, or, right. or reinvest some of the focus as, as the landscape changes. Now, what I always uh, tend to do is take in real life examples, as I mentioned earlier on, 
why is it important to increase the security budget? So obviously we are a service-driven organization, so we have a lot of customers that come with their pool of, of requirements towards us and their security levels, which in part are driven by regulation, but also in other ends just driven on their, their risk appetite. And that's something we need to live up to as an organization. So that's one of the leverages I use for my argumentations on, on why we need to need to spend more. Also take in real life examples of, of new emerging threats uh, that we see, geopolitical tensions that could put us in risk uh, and otherwise to justify that extra spend. And it's just with every other piece of technology is moving at a much, much, much more quicker pace than it maybe did 30 years ago. And that's something you as an organization have to adapt to and understand that this is not a spend that goes down. It will will increase over time. Obviously, you don't have to do this as efficiently as possible, right? So when you look at the different services you have in the security organization, you always want to make sure that you run it in the most efficient way. You don't just pile on different sets of tools just to have tools, but you want, right. want to make sure to have them and it's, I have a single pane of glass approach to that to make sure I don't blow out of proportion, but that everything can integrate and that there's a purpose with everything we, we deploy into into organization. Because otherwise, I don't get the buy-in from, from the board or management. I, I lose their trust if I just spend money and I cannot justify it. And that's back to the earlier discussion. And yes, we're actually improving maturity. Here's examples from our red team simulations that no, they could not reach us. So it's actually bearing fruit. We can win more customer contracts because of our value proposition we have that, you know, it's actually our services are secure. It's not just something we say. Um, so. Right. And and that ties into, you mentioned geopolitical and you mentioned regulatory. And I'm sitting here thinking of both. And we talked about sort of um, a more, tactical risk perspective earlier. And I'm thinking of these things like, you know, like a whole new regulatory thing comes out, whatever. I don't know, like, like imagine GDPR just got invented yesterday. Uh, suddenly here you are facing that or whatever the new regulations might be. ISO 27001, you know, new edition just came out, um, which I, honestly I haven't even cracked open yet. I've got to go in there and see how much has changed. Um, PCI just released 4.0. You know, there's always something new coming out. It could be completely new. It could be a new updated version. Um, in my mind, these are still risks, right? Like, like if I'm out of compliance, there's a risk to the business. If I'm out of compliance, there's a risk to, to your point, customer confidence might not be there any longer. You know, I need you to be ISO 27001 compliant or, you know, PCI 4.0 or whatever it might be. Um, so, so these are more strategic risks versus some of the more tactical risks we talked about before. So I, I guess the last thing I want to drill in on a little bit here is risk alignment. And, and we could be talking about these higher level strategic risks. We could be talking about tactical risks that you've uncovered from your breach and attack simulation. You know, hey, we got a, a vulnerable attack surface over here in this cloud could be a risk, you know, all the way up to, um, you know, we've got uh, three offices in Ukraine. You know, I mean, it, it could be it could be any any number of these kinds of things scaling up and down. So how do you try to align your spend with those risks, um, those categories of risk, right? The business functions, the capabilities that are all tied to those, you know, all the way up and down the scale from tactical to strategic. Let's let's drill into that just a little bit more. Yeah, and that's a really, really, really hard balance to to strike, actually, right? But what I usually tend to to focus on and also to tell my team is we can be perfect in our strategic risk mitigation and half and ISO certification and whatnot. And our house could still be on fire because we're not in control of our tactical risk, right? Right, uh, right. So on, 
paper, you could look really, really good. But if you don't stress test your things, if you're not aware about your tactical risk that you have, that's being things like configurations of your EDR, uh, actually making sure that your baselines are rolled out everywhere, that they don't just exist on paper, then you're always in this firefighting state and you will have a difficult time also achieving your, your strategic objectives over time, of course. So it, it is tricky to strike that balance, but I tend to focus more on the tactical risk because that will mm -hmm. drive the strategic risk and give me more breathing room to focus on the strategic risk uh, in the longer in the longer run, because they also usually tend to take a little bit longer to to remediate. And, and I would argue that those tactical risks are a little bit easier to tie back to maturity per our earlier conversation, right? It's it's easy to say we've got these 18 risks and they add up to a lower maturity score and we're tackling them one at a time and improving maturity versus the big broader stroke of do we have ISO 27001 certification, right? I, I think the tactical lends itself towards maturity a little bit more there. Well, Martin, this has been a fantastic conversation. You've brought me some really good insights that I'm walking away with. I'm sure our audience is enjoying these as well. Uh, any closing thoughts for us? Any just other thoughts on this topic? Anything else about breach and attack simulation, tactical risk, strategic risk, how we actually measure the inputs, the outputs, the data evaluation, all of it. Fields wide open here. What do you have to offer us as parting thoughts? Well, what I would really like to, to share is that breach and attack simulation is definitely something that has helped us out greatly. I mean, we had misconfigurations in our environment, otherwise that we simply would never detect without actually being able to automate this stuff. Um, it's just a tactical advantage to be able to deploy a capability, go right in, test that capability that just gives you a different level of, of assurance and maneuverability as well, uh, because you can compare apples to apples. Uh, you are not dependent on a red teaming exercise that you might only do conduct every quarter or every half year or whatever your timeline for that is, where you can actually deploy something, test it right away. Does it actually work? Uh, or where do I still have gaps? In return, speaking of the return of investment, that also helps you. Let's say you are called in, in a board meeting very urgently. You know, you can take that data with you and actually give a real life example of what does it currently look like? Where is our where some it stayed at. So from that point of view, I think that's a very, very valuable tool to have also to, to be able to do these calculations. I love that real-time reporting, real-time capabilities, and that ability to snatch the latest off the printer and run to the, <laughs> run to the board with the latest and greatest. I love it. Well, Martin Peterson, thank you so much for coming down and chatting with us. Uh, listeners, thank you so much. And everyone, have yourself a good day.